0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode of Other People is sponsored by the Pygmalion Literary Festival, taking place in various bars throughout downtown Champaign and Urbana, Illinois, on September 27th and 28th, 2013, The Pygmalion Literary Festival will feature an eclectic lineup of emerging and established authors, many of whom have appeared right here on this program. This year's headliners include Dan Sean, Amelia Gray, Matt Bell, Roxanne Gay, and James Greer, who will be joined by Kyle Miner, Lindsay Hunter, Kathleen Rooney, and many more. And what else, you ask? Well, since the Pygmalion Lit Fest is a collaboration... Between Ninth Letter, Hobart, Another Literary Journal, and the Pygmalion Music Festival, folks who attend this year will be able to experience a great lineup of musicians like Major Lazer, Dawes, The Breeders, Kurt Vile, and The Violators, and The Head and the Heart. Catch the beginning of Kurt Weil's set after hearing Matt Bell and Roxanne Gay read together. Kill Time, in between Amelia Gray's reading and The Breeders' set, By checking out the Pygmalion Book Fair That's right, there's going to be a book fair too Or get amped up for Major Laser By experiencing what happens when Lindsay Hunter Aaron Birch and Elizabeth Ellen read together If this sounds like fun to you, which it should You can learn more at PygmalionLitFest.com There you can find the full lit and music lineups uh, That are posted along with other important details. That's PygmalionLitFest.com This is a literary and music festival slash extravaganza. You can attend it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think
1: it's really beautiful. Did it, a struggle, you know? it was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, <laughs> folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me moving my mouth. This is you not moving yours. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles and uh, you can move your mouth if you want, obviously. Um What's going on? I've been pondering the news of the week or trying to digest it. I feel a sense of responsibility to do this uh, because there's been a lot of news about the business of publishing uh, over the past few days. And by this, I'm referring in particular to the ruling handed down uh, regarding Apple, the technology company, and its uh, collusion with uh, publishers in New York City to raise the price of eBooks. That was the charge, and uh, the presiding judge in federal court found Apple guilty. This week, and this on the heels of uh, Barnes and Noble announcing that its CEO—and this is unrelated—it's another, you know, it's a second big story. But uh, Barnes and Noble uh, just this week announced that its CEO has been uh, dismissed, and that they will not be bringing on a new one. Which seems strange. And uh, from what I gather, uh, reading up on this a little bit, uh, this could mean that Barnes & Noble is about to be broken up into pieces? Something like that. I don't know exactly what it means, but uh, there's just been a lot of change this week. Changes afoot, anyway. And, uh, you know, frankly, none of this is, is completely surprising. You know, and, and all of this has been talked about a lot... the mutating environment in publishing in the digital age. I don't mean to add to that noise, uh, but this week has seemed unusually active in a concrete sense, meaning that stuff has happened that has a real impact uh, on the book business. So I feel like I should talk about it. And uh, it seems to be like, you know, all of this really seems to be centered on Amazon That's the underlying story, even though it's, you know, Amazon itself is not necessarily in the headline, uh, on, on these particular stories. Uh, you know, they're the elephant in the room and the big six, which is now the big five, uh, publishers after random house merged with penguin recently, the big five publishers in New York. Uh, they were working with Apple in an effort to halt Amazon's disruptive growth. And in particular, its dominance in the ebook market. That's what this court ruling was about. So their effort failed. The publishers settled out of court before this even happened. And then Apple just lost. So what this means is that Amazon wins. In this round, anyway. And it seems positioned to continue its dominance and perhaps to even expand upon it. Uh, And so I've been reading up on this. I didn't realize this, but uh, I read today that Amazon now collects 31% of all money spent on books. 31 cents on every dollar. So, you know, it has enormous control over the book market, the mainstream book market. You know, not only can it work to set prices, it can, uh, determine what people are exposed to, what book jackets they see on their screens, you know, the algorithms, and I can't help but see some dark potential in this. I think there's danger here that needs to be guarded against, you know, that one massive entity could have this much power leads me to believe that, uh, the power could be abused. Right? There's just a lot that could go wrong. Uh, like, for example, did you know that if you have a Kindle, Amazon does have the power to prevent you from accessing your entire library? That can be done on their end. And then there's also this other uh, legal stuff where, you know, in many cases, you don't own the ebooks that exist on your Kindle, you're, you know, only paying to license them. It's very tricky. The, the legal ease of this particular kind of transaction. So, like, what is, you know, what are your rights to that material if somebody wants to pull it away from you? It just seems slippery. That's all I'm saying. And, I, you know, I'm not paranoid, I don't think I'm paranoid. Uh, it just seems a little slippery. And I like the idea of having multiple options. And I like the idea of having physical books, too, as a safeguard, uh, both in stores and uh, especially in libraries. So, and, and, you know, at the same time, to be fair, uh, I do respond to the notion that traditional publishers and booksellers have gotten caught flat-footed from a business perspective, broadly speaking. The, the reality is that they've been massively outfoxed and continue to be outfoxed by Amazon. And it's been going on for, what, 20 years? I don't know how long. It seems like a long time. And you know what? I think they know it. I think these businesses know it, and I don't think they quite know what to do about it at this point. And, you know, maybe there's a plan brewing somewhere. Maybe that's why Random House merged with Penguin, and this will be the fight. But... You know, personally, I haven't seen a plan or read about a plan that feels comprehensive or super compelling, you know, as of yet. So it would appear that Amazon is winning the competition. And uh, maybe that's even too soft of a phrase. I think they're actually, you know, it seems sometimes like they're really trying to destroy the competition. Which I I believe is the argument of the competition. (laughs) You know. And I, you know, I guess that's business. Is that business? Like, is that how business operates? You try to destroy the competition? Seems bleak. I mean, you know, the the big five publishers and Barnes and Noble and, uh, and especially the indie, you know, the independent booksellers they would probably tell you that Amazon is trying to actively destroy them and that in so doing uh, will cause harm to the world of books and reading. And I imagine that Amazon would uh, counter by telling you that it is a benevolent revolutionary force for positive change and that it is liberating both reader and writer from shackles. It's you know it's amazing what people can convince themselves of, when money is at stake. It really is, and and I'm not even speaking of uh, Amazon specifically or this particular storyline specifically. I'm I'm speaking broadly about human nature. Like if you were to offer someone five million dollars a year to uh, club baby seals to death for a living, uh, I bet that that person could find a way to convince themselves of its merits and could provide you with an elaborate uh, explanation for why their work is important and ethical. Sort of, that's bleak too, but I think it's kind of true with most people anyway, or a lot of people. So it comes down to vision I think, I mean, I think it comes down to like the vision of the future and it seems like Amazon and the uh, technologists of the world envision uh, like a radically different future for publishing. And it's a future where uh, readers and writers are interfacing uh, more or less directly. And what this what I mean by that is that, you know, all of the existing infrastructure in old publishing or traditional publishing, uh, agents, well, first of all, just like the, the, the bookstores, the publishing houses. And then of course, you know, w- w- what I mean by that, and you know, as well as, uh, the manpower, the people, so editors, agents, the people who work in bookstores, all that stuff is gone in the Amazonian vision or most of it's gone. A lot of those roles are rendered obsolete or they're pushed uh, well to the periphery. And of course, it's not just about the writer and the reader interfacing more or less directly. You know, there, there's something misleading about putting it that way because, uh, in the Amazonian vision, writers and readers are interfacing more or less directly in the Amazon ecosystem on the web, you know, at amazon.com using the Kindle, using the Kindle app and so on. And of course, uh, Amazon takes a healthy portion of every single sale in that particular world. So, you know, I guess kudos to Amazon for being business savvy. Uh, I'll give them that. They've played hard. They've played their cards right in a lot of, you know, in a lot of ways, but I don't know. My gut just tells me, and I, you know, I think I might've said this before, but my gut tells me that we, we should, uh, people should play hard to compete against them. I want to see that happen because I think that the more ecosystems we have, the better and people should have options and writers need to get paid for real somehow. More. Better. How in God's name is that going to happen? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, His new novel, Madhouse Fog, is now available from Manic D Press. Uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's had an interesting life and career. He's published several books uh, on small presses. He co founded Razorcake Magazine uh, and also started his own uh, small publishing company called Gorsky Press. So we're going to get into all of that, and it, it seems apropos in light of what I just talked about. So here he is, folks. This is Sean Carswell. And his new novel, once again, is called Madhouse Fog. It's it's not on the Channel Islands. It's in Camarillo. Okay. Okay. See, I was thinking I was was talking because I know the Channel Islands are pretty desolate, right? Like I was thinking. Right. Okay. I thought you were going to be out there like living in some sort of like, you know, seaside shack or something. I didn't know what was going on.
1: No, um... it's called Cal State Channel Islands in part because it sounds better, but also the the buildings. It's situated on the um, grounds of the old Camarillo State Psychiatric Hospital, which was kind of a a famous psychological institution where, um, or psychiatric institution where, um, like Charlie Parker wrote a, a song about getting off of some drug there, uh, called relaxing at Camarillo, and W. C. Fields went there to to sober up and um, and. Like, if you watch old Dragnet episodes or read old Raymond Chandler novels, they'll talk about threatening to send people up to Camarillo. So they didn't want to call it Cal State Camarillo because the city kind of has this uh, lingering reputation of being the funny farm. (laughs) (laughs) And plus, you know, Cal State Northridge, people call CSUN. And if it was CSUC, um, Cal State Camarillo, people might call it CSUC and
0: Ah yeah. right, okay. So you,
1: want, you want to avoid these kinds of things.
0: Okay, I got it. So, and like when you say there's lingering, I mean there's lingering. Um, you know, the, what is it? Relics of the the old psychiatric hospital? Like what, what's uh-huh. there? What's there structurally? Like what do you see around you? That I mean, is there anything there? Uh, left of it, or is it is it pretty much gone and has been replaced by the by the school?
1: Um. Almost everything is left of it. Um, in In the sense that we just they just renovated the hospital buildings and and um, and so it, it, if you look at old pictures of the hospital and you look at new pictures of the university it doesn 't really look that different um, when i When I first started, the campus opened in in two thousand and two and I started there in two thousand and four, and most of it wasn 't renovated so when I first started, um, there were all kinds of relics. All around you could kind of wander through the old abandoned buildings and I mean most anything of value was taken out, but you could see the old day rooms and therapy rooms and a lot of the bars are still on the windows and a lot of the south quad hasn't been renovated so it's still it still looks a bit like an old psych hospital
0: um, <laughs> and it's been repurposed for the for higher education I like that
1: <laughs> exactly well yeah i i mean uh our institutions are all remarkably similar you know you could probably take the buildings of a of a Junior high school and turn it into a prison with a fence <laughs> you know you know what i mean our our institutions are all are all pretty pretty similar so um yeah it's like you need, so like, you a, need
0: like a cafeteria and you need some you know it's yeah that you don't there's not that much different <laughs> structure
1: exactly right? exactly and um a lot of the especially when I first started working there, a lot of the um people who who do the maintenance and, and, um, we, we call them OPC operations planning and something else, construction, I guess. And, um, and the OPC guys were all the maintenance workers from the old hospital. So they're, they're full of stories.
0: I was going to say, know? is there any, like, do you, have you heard anything super crazy or creepy or is there anything weird, um, there that you can point to?
1: Um, yes, <laughs> uh, well the the new novel I have madhouse fog it, a, a lot of it came out of me starting to work in in kind of on the grounds of an old mental institution and um and i I talked with a lot of the roads and grounds guy and a lot of um people who used to be there as psych techs or nurses or psychologists and I just got a a lot of stories um m- most of the best the best among them I put in the book um and i i, w- I won't really repeat them but there are also like creepy rumors that that roam around the place and and you don't know how how true they are Um, like I guess the worst one the most shocking one is uh, they did a lot of uh, electroshock therapy and they did a lot of some sort of treatment that involved water called hydrotherapy I'm not sure exactly what that is but um apparently a lot of the patients died during treatment and it's kind of the horrifying thing is uh, there was a uh, nurse who wrote a, a memoir about her time there, and she claimed that when, when patients who didn't have families died in electroshock therapy or hydrotherapy, that they'd just take them back south of the South Quad and bury them there. And so, according to her, there was a mass grave south of the South Quad,
0: oh, which,
1: which is creepy. And then um, they're, they're supposed to put a new building there starting in the fall. And so I, I kind of want to linger around that construction site and see if what happens when they start digging for the foundation. Yeah. Know? I was going to say dig anything up.
0: I was just envisioning like students playing like Frisbee golf over a mass grave. You
1: know? <laughs> well, right now they would be parking their cars over it right now. It's a parking lot.
0: Oh, it is. Okay. But you know, yeah. it's like when you hear these stories and there's a, you know, there's quite a few of them that, that span all sorts of different types of medicine, but particularly with mental health mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, or with like the, the, um, the medicine of of even the mid twentieth century, you can sometimes hear stories of what doctors used to think or how they used to practice that absolutely chill you. You're just like, you gotta be uh-huh. k- kidding me with like shocking people. Um, who knows what hydrotherapy is? But uh-huh. there's just a lot of. Uh, ignorance, just bad idea. Yeah. Bad ideas that, you know, gained prominence somehow and were sort of like the, the status quo for a long time that when you look at them with the benefit of hindsight seem completely deranged.
1: Yeah. Well, I wonder about that with contemporary medicine and all that, especially well, right. all, the, uh, all the drugs we're on. Right. You know? I mean, I, I think sooner or later, I, probably a society is going to look back and say, wow, (laughs) they were fucked up. Yeah, Yeah.
0: no, exactly. There's so many things. Like, I think um, along those lines, like, I think that the way that we have commodified animals will one day be looked upon in the way that we look upon, like, medieval times. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too deep into that because I've talked about that on this show before to some extent. And I can just feel people listening, you know, cringing or whatever. But I do think that. I think one day that'll be the case. Um, And then I think that, like when it comes to the pharmaceuticals of today and the way that like illegal drugs have basically just been replaced by you know quote unquote, legal drugs either that right, are right. sanctioned by these pharmaceutical companies like we don't realize i don't think yet uh, the full impact of that i don't think we've mm-hmm. really been able i don't think we've gotten far enough along to be able to really measure it but I, my gut tells me it's not good uh, yeah. and then there's uh what was the other thing that i was going to say Oh, and, you know, I just had a friend of mine email me, uh, you know, not too long ago with a book recommendation, and it was it's about, like, uh, optimism, mm-hmm. and, you know, because I, I guess I tend to be sort of gloom and doom or, like, right. a little bit more skeptical or pessimistic when it comes to human progress in contemporary times, and this book is, like, really like a ray of sunshine that says, like, everything's going to be okay. We're, uh-huh. we're developing these technologies that are going to... You know, mitigate the effects of climate change and this, that, and the other. And like, I find myself so increasingly leery of technology as mm-hmm. a, a panacea for all that ills us. Like, not that technology can't be part of the solution, but just that technology um, as like the solution for everything seems to me to miss out on the core ailment. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's like addressing. Yeah. The symptoms, as opposed to the cause.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's probably tantamount to to how we how we kind of fight wars. I remember in in the eighties we had this whole we wanted to do this project, the United States, not me and you, but um, this project called Star Wars, where you want to shoot missiles down out of the sky. And I'm like, that's crazy. You might as well try to shoot bullets out of the sky when it's coming toward you. Right. Um, and 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 so our, our whole idea. For making ourselves safe is just continuing to advance our weaponry, and I, I'm I'm not sure that, that that's the solution. Well, that's you know? the thing. I mean,
0: look at the 20th century. I mean, like, yeah, we mechanized warfare. We and our technology capa- technological capabilities advanced by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of positive aspects to that, but we also have the atom bomb now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right.
1: Yeah, we have we have drones, which are. Uh, right. Creepy in their own right. Yeah.
0: So I don't know. I mean, it's sort of off topic. I don't know, but that's where my head has been lately. So it's sort of, it's sort of sparked that when you think about medicine and I don't know the way human beings devise solutions to their problems.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the positive thing, if you take it back to the, to the psych hospital is in a sense for people who are actually getting, um, psychiatric treatment today, it, it has improved quite a bit. Um, well, yeah. It really has. Our access to it hasn't improved, but the the people who actually get it, you know, they can, they can, they can really uh, live better and more complete lives.
0: Well, anything's it's better than like old school electric shock therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it seems, so. I mean, I guess they still do electroshock therapy for in some like cases, you know, for people. Yeah. But uh, it seemed to me. I mean, this I always envision these people with the like the old clamps on their heads, like biting down on a stick or whatever it was, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, re- really bummed out Sylvia Plath. <laughs> yeah,
0: or, or Ernest Hemingway. I mean, like there's a I mean, God knows right. how many God knows how many writers of the 20th century had to have that done, you know? Right, right. Um, so where are you from originally? Are you from Southern California?
1: No, I'm I'm originally from Florida. I'm from uh this uh strange little town on the east coast of Florida called Merritt Island, and it's um it's where Kennedy Space Center is. Um and so it's it's kind of um swampland that was dredged up for the housing for the people who who worked uh, at the space center like on the Apollo program and that kind of thing so it was this weird kind of mix between um very southern kind of country people and and rocket scientists
0: so is it pretty depressed now that the space program is is dried up a lot
1: um man last time last time I was there it was like Riding through Flint, Michigan, um, nice. it, it was. Uh, but th- th- I hadn't been back for about three years. I, my uh, my family tells me things are improving. Um, but but when I was there, everyone who I looked up and talked to was out of work, and every, every half the places I tried to go to were closed up, and it was it was looking pretty sad.
0: Yeah, um, I remember I remember seeing something on like 60 Minutes about like the end of the space program and like what it was doing to that particular. That little section of Florida, and like it was bleak. Yeah. A lot of like the, bar, yeah. the bars were closing up, and you know, there's just nothing left,
1: right? Yeah, when the bars close up, there really is nothing left. <laughs> 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 <And> These <either laughs> are the last businesses to sticks around. <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> because everybody, I, I
0: everybody segment, who's, who's out of work needs a place to go, you know,
1: exactly. But I saw that segment, and uh, and that that was my hometown, yeah.
0: Oh, it was okay, I couldn't remember yeah. that was Merritt Island, okay?
1: So, like, it, well, they did Titusville and Merritt Island, those were the two towns that. Um, that got hit the hardest.
0: Okay, and did now? Did you did your uh, folks work in like space program related capacities?
1: Um, n- not really. That's how they originally got down there. My uh, my dad, when he was in the army, worked on worked with explosives, and um, and so he was a, a technician after the army for Grumman, and and uh, which is a defense contractor. And Grumman got the contract for the lunar module, which was the thing that landed on the, the space, the the ship that actually landed on the moon. And so my dad worked on the program where they initiated the explosive sequence to cut all the wires off the platform of the lunar module so they could go back up into space. Um, and, and so he came down to work on that. And then in 1973, he got laid off from the space program and then he got into, uh, real estate and
0: construction. Okay. And like so much. well like like residential. It seems like kind of a it seems like kind of a, a pretty dramatic departure. Like you go from like making the or or you know, working on the thing that lands on the moon to like was he building houses or
1: Yeah. Well he was just blowing them up for a while there. No I'm kidding. No, okay. kidding. Um yeah, he was <laughs> he he uh he he did. What he did was he started buying uh cheap houses like uh sh- sh- shitty little shacks and fixing them up and selling them up, selling them for a little bit more money and, and then he, he worked up to getting a contractor's license. And my mom was a uh, elementary school teacher and um, and a few years after my dad got his business up, she uh, she quit teaching and she worked as kind of like the secretary slash bookkeeper for him and still so, does in that capacity.
0: So family business. Yep, and you didn't you didn't yeah. take it over. You didn't like you know you you went off in another direction and started riding as opposed to uh, like building houses and carrying the flag.
1: Well, well, not not entirely. I I grew up I grew up on construction sites. I started working construction at 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 thirteen. My um, my dad was doing a, a remodel and and he needed someone to uh, to break up a, a concrete slab. So he said, "All right, Sean, man." <laughs> Grab the jackhammer. Let's go to work. And so, um, so I did a lot of stuff like that. So the first day I worked, I was 13. Uh, ran a jackhammer for eight hours.
0: Dude, um, I've run, I've I've actually worked with a jackhammer before breaking up a conc- uh, breaking up a concrete concrete slab when I would do uh, like summer landscaping work. Oh wow! And yeah, it rattles your bones, man. That's hard on your body. <laughs> I know it. I know such, it. It's such a weird feeling to have one of those things going because, like, just you can feel all of your bones rattling. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The 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 funniest is when you stop. You know, and then and and your body keeps going. It feels like you're, you're still running it for about a half an hour afterwards. <laughs> so
0: you're 13 years old running a jackhammer for eight hours. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then, oh, but yeah. that basically. Um, a lot of my adolescence was my dad kind of sending me to do the jobs that he couldn't hire anyone else to do. Um, so, uh, just uh, if, if, if it was a shitty job, I would do it. You know yeah. I mean? That's, that, that's, um,
0: like, that's like another job I had in college was like working for the foreman of a construction site. And I just basically was, I mean, and I had, I should add here that I'm like the least gifted person when it comes to, uh, using tools. I'm horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, so I was useless. So they basically just made me do gopher work. It was like, dig out that ditch or, you know, whatever nobody else wanted to do. I did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the worst, the worst of, of the jobs that he had me do. And I, I wrote a short story about it where I only lightly fictionalized it, but, um, he had a house where he needed to put up, uh, support posts where a septic tank was. So he needed someone to, to break up the top of the septic tank and then fill it in. And, um, so, so I went out to do it and I'm banging on the top of the septic tank, which is about four inches of concrete. I'm banging on it with a sledgehammer and I start hearing the concrete underneath splash down and I realize, oh, fuck, man, there's nothing but shit underneath this concrete. Oh. <laughs> and pretty soon this lid is going to, all of it's going to break and all of this concrete's just going to go, you know, dropping into this shit. Oh, um, yeah. and so then I really had to think about how I was going to handle this and, and every way I looked at it, um it was going to end the
0: same and that's um, and the it, day and that's the day you decided you're going to be a writer <laughs> no no
1: i kept going <laughs> that's that's the day that i learned to look for water before i broke too much concrete um just so i could rinse off once the shit got all over me oh my god um but i mean there, yeah so there was a lot of that uh but w- what i what i did learn pretty quickly was to learn a trade so i i learned to be a framing carpenter and so that 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 made things a lot better then I stopped doing shit work and i I uh, um, did a lot of framing carpentry and so then i
0: I had a skill so wait what does that on. mean you, like you go in when they're building a house you're the one who goes in and puts the frame up
1: yeah yeah so um it will, yeah when you see I'm the one who builds the walls and the roof okay basically okay. if if you if you look at a house and it's coming up and you see all the two by fours come up and, and they build the frame of the house. That's what a framing carpenter does.
0: Ah, I didn't realize there were different. Like I thought like there's just carpenters who do everything, but there's actually framing carpenters. And then there, there are people, cause there's actually a building going in across the street from me right now. And mm-hmm. I'm watching these guys on a daily basis. Just like I, I marvel whether it's a house or especially if it's like a skyscraper, like where do you start? You know, like uh-huh. someone, there's gotta be like the first thing you do relative to the foundation. But um, that sort of work fascinates me because it's so far removed from like, you know, my abilities.
1: Well, really the first thing you do with a building is the first thing you do with everything. You find someone to give you some money for it. <laughs> <laughs> and and okay. then, and then, and then it's the second thing that gets interesting. I'm going to try to, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm going to try to Kickstarter my next house. See if someone,
1: <laughs> uh, Every, everyone gets a little piece. You can put a brick with their name on it.
0: So how do you go from that to, uh, you have your Ph.D. in literature, correct? Uh-huh. So, okay, so uh, t- take us from working construction and framing houses to there.
1: Okay. Um, that, that, I mean, that, that, that's kind of like a 20-year process. Um, but when I got out of, uh, I, I worked construction all through uh, college when I was getting my bachelor's. And, and um, I did it so that I had money, um, you know, like to live. Um, and, uh, and, and so it wasn't really like, you know, you get the kind of, um, cliche of the college boy on the, on the job site and everyone's calling him college boy and that kind of thing. I I didn't really have that. I had the, the opposite, which was, I was the carpenter and why are you going to college and, and that kind of thing. You're a carpenter you should be here. So when I got my bachelor's, I I didn't, I felt like, I mean, I, it, it was in English and I know people say that's a worthless degree, but I mean it's it's not. There's a lot you can do with it, and um, and and I had some good opportunities, but I felt like I didn't I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to work in a cubicle. I went back to uh, Merritt Island. I didn't really know. It seemed like I had two choices. I could either go work for the space center or I could work construction, and they both seemed kind of untenable. But construction was easier, so I I did that. Um, and then when I was, uh, about 20, yeah, about a year and a half at almost two years after, uh, I graduated, um, I, I was working on a construction crew and we were building the second floor. And, um, and when you build a, 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 when you build the floor, you put plywood down on floor joists and you glue the joists first. So, um, so we're, we're going, we're building this floor and, uh, this guy on the the job site, Billy, um, the glue was on the floor joists, and he laid the plywood down, and usually you you hammer the plywood off so that it stays in place before you walk away from it. And Billy didn't do that, and he walked away, and I just assumed that that piece of floor had been hammered in, and I Uh, stepped on it, and uh, the plywood slid out underneath me. So I, I, I fell between the joists and... I tried to catch myself, and uh, it, it works real well in action movies, but in, in real life, if you try to catch yourself when you 're falling, you just break things oh. um, <laughs> so I broke my hand, I separated my shoulder, I fell into the hole, hit the ground um, like every every nail in my nail pouch punctured my ass, you know oh. and it just it was, it was a tremendous amount of pain um, and then being a construction site everyone 's reaction was uh, to make a smart ass remark rather than like, Hey, are you okay? Like, <laughs> hey, you know, you could have taken the ladder down, stupid <laughs> shit like that. Um, and then my brother was on this, on the crew and he came and he saw that my shoulder was separated and he, uh, he, uh, put like one hand by my collar, by my collarbone and the other on my elbow and just yanked my shoulder up and it actually popped it back in place. That was uh, all right. My God. But I was, I was just, I was just pissed off, you know, like, like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, and I didn't have insurance, and I knew that there's, a, there's, like, a joke that's not a joke on Florida construction sites that if you fall, you're fired before you hit the ground. And I knew the truth is if I went to the hospital, it would cost me $1,000. I would get fired, um, and I would just be fucked. So I just went, went over to the side of the, you know, another part of the job and sat there pissed off for about a half hour, and then I just went back to work. Um, and I, I worked for like obviously uh, every day with a broken hand and and a separated shoulder until they healed. But it, that really got me to thinking. Um, <laughs> got me thinking that I didn't want to do this anymore. And I'd done well in school, so I uh, I I um, went back to graduate school. Like I while, while my hand was still swollen the size of a boxing glove i was sitting in the library looking up graduate programs
0: well that's the thing too is that like you know it's really it's really demanding physical work whether or not you know whether or not you fall you know it's kind of like a side side, um, it's beside the point because you know every day you're lifting it's you know i don't have to explain it it's just demanding difficult work and i think like about these guys who do it over a lifetime like how do you make it into your 60s doing that kind of work it's got to chew people up yeah yeah
1: yeah I used to work with this old timer he was uh this was when I was in high school and he was um in in getting close to sixty five where social security would kick in and he was really looking forward to that. but he would go a little crazy from the heat every day and uh and and he like at two thirty he would just be loopy. Um, he'd do, he'd do weird things. Like he'd sing, how much is that doggy in the window? But then he'd like get mad at the doggy in the window and he'd be like, how much is that motherfucker in the window? And he'd just be banging his hammer. <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> he'd really kind of snap every day around two 30 and then three o'clock we'd roll up. And then, uh, and then the next day he'd be fine. He'd be back
0: you know that's the guy you and, want with the power tools you know as soon as he loses his <laughs> mind
1: this guy was my hero when I was a kid but <laughs> I, mean, I thought this guy's the toughest he's the baddest <laughs> he used to be able to drink a case of beer in a
0: night so. <laughs> so what about uh, what about heights like are you one of those guys who can like because I see these guys out there standing on like you know the thir- a third story ledge with nothing separating them from uh, a deathfall and they're just laughing you know like I can, uh-huh. I can never get over that and uh, when I was working that, uh, on that construction site one summer in college as like the foreman's bitch or whatever, uh-huh. uh, I remember that, and it wasn't that tall of a building. We were building a warehouse and so it was like, you know, 20, 25 feet up, but like high enough uh-huh. that like you didn't want to fall. <laughs> right. And sure. uh, I remember he was up there and he's like, you know, can you bring me whatever, a drill? And I was mm-hmm. like, okay. You know, and I walked up and I had about like 15 yards or 20 yards to walk on this beam. Uh, with nothing, you know, on either <laughs> side, he's just standing there, and I walked, and I got so dizzy and freaked out because I don't, you know, it turns out I don't, uh-huh. lo- I don't love heights, and I always say it's not heights that bother me; it's the idea of falling. Right. Uh, but I wound up like on my belly, like holding this. Beam, and they, he was just laughing at me. They brought the ladder over. I was, you know, it was embarrassing to say the least. But uh, can you do that stuff? Like, are you mentally capable?
1: Oh. Uh- especially when i was young i could you know when i was in high school working on job sites or, or going through college I, I i was happy to work all the high places when, when when i fell i was no longer happy to do it um but uh yeah up until the fall it was no problem after the fall i was always thinking about going down
0: yeah that's the thing it's like cuz i got, even this morning and this actually happened just a couple hours ago i was walking and for whatever reason, I was like walking along a curb in kind of like a balance beam type way, just for a few uh-huh. steps. And I always think of this whenever I do that. I always think to myself, "It's so easy. Like I can walk in a straight line on a curb six inches off the ground for a mile and not have a problem. Uh-huh. But if that if that curb, if that six inch you know span of concrete happens to be you know a hundred stories up, like there's no way. You know, like right? It's right. all it's all mental.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, so the, and really, anything after after six feet, you're going to break something. And anything after thirty feet, you're pretty much
0: going to die. Have you ever seen anybody get seriously injured or killed on a job site?
1: Um, I, it depends on how you define seriously. Um, it, it's pretty regular fare for people to to shoot themselves with nail guns. I don't, I don't know anyone who works with a nail gun who hasn't had a nail gun in them. Oh. Um, I work I worked with one guy who. Uh, who nailed his toe to a floor joist at one point? Oh. Um it was, it, was this, it was this brutal scene, Brad, where uh, he nailed his foot to the to the floor joist, and his dad was working on the crew with him. And his dad walks over, pulls his hammer out of the out of the hammer holster, uh-huh. and just jams the claw and cranks him out of the floor joist. puts his hammer back and says, so "Get yourself to the hospital."
0: Yeah, go get, go, and, get uh, go get your tetanus shot.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, he took it. He, the guy took the nail out himself before going to the hospital. Uh, um, he didn't want to pay for it.
0: What's the rule? Um, what, like, what? Isn't there some rule with like puncture wounds where you're supposed to leave the thing in, or do you take it out? I can't ever remember.
1: <laughs> it's like that Family Guy episode where Stewie has a glass in his head. You know, do I leave it in or take it out? Do I leave it in, or take it out? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. He took it out. He went and got a tetanus shot. He was, he was fine.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I but wonder. A, I wonder about nail guns. Those are lethal weapons.
1: They can be, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, i i I knew um, I knew guys who who died because of industrial accidents, but never while I was on the job. Yeah, like, um, I would love to see. Or paralyzed there. Yeah.
0: I would like to see uh, numbers of people killed on the job in the United States, you know, or just, Mm -hmm. or just generally, because there's a lot of dangerous, there are a lot of dangerous jobs that, and people like the, how many, how many lives are lost, you know, in the workforce, you know, on a daily basis or on a yearly basis? I have no idea, you know, but something tells me the number would surprise you.
1: And, well, I have, I don't, I don't know that number, but I, I have seen the statistic that, um, that the most dangerous job in the United States is, is carpenter, um, it's more dangerous than, than like police officer or fireman or, or, um, Alaskan fishermen or whatever.
0: Yeah. Cause I, they you have
1: more fatalities and injuries.
0: It doesn't surprise me. I ha- and I have heard that like, you know, those fishing boats in Alaska are notoriously, you know, treacherous, but, um, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me, you know, every day working at heights with like a nail gun and like saws going <laughs> and like a pocket full of nails. Like it's just a bad, yeah. re- it's a bad recipe.
1: Yeah, it it, it all, all in all was and so, yeah. For kind of early in life, I uh, I said, man, I, I want to work a job where my feet are like on a floor or on the ground. You know, <laughs> that's a good start. Um, if I don't have to climb anything, if I have like a a full floor underneath me, that's always good.
0: Yeah. Well, so, okay, so were you reading all the time? I mean, like, how did your interest in literature, I mean, you're a Thomas Pynchon scholar, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am. So, um,
0: so how does that happen? I mean, you know, amid all this construction work, were you, like, pouring through Pynchon? Or? <laughs>
1: uh, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I, I was always a reader, even even as a kid, um, and, and it was in part because um, – my my family we went through times of having you know no money and times of having having we're doing fine, um... but but like I, I remember being a kid, and um... and when I talk to people about what they remember watching on TV as a kid, I always feel kind of left out because the the one thing I remember watching on TV, more more than anything was my dad trying to fix the TV, like we had this this old TV and, and it still had picture tubes and the picture tubes were always blowing. And, um, and, and so my dad would get back there, he'd take apart the whole TV, try to put a picture tube in it. He'd usually have a buddy with them. They'd usually be drinking. And that was the best entertainment on TV. You know, just listen to them cuss and tell stories and try to fix that fucking thing. And, and so I remember watching that on TV, but then, you know, when it was fixed and like Facts of Life was on or something, I'd just go into a room and read. Um, <laughs>
0: what well, you weren't until, into like Tootie and Natalie and I remember that show, Blair, Mrs. Garrett.
1: Um, I guess once puberty hit, I was a little more into them, but Natalie especially. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I wasn't. You know, my, I had a brother and sister, and they were always watching TV, and I, I didn't really dig what they watched, so I, I read a lot. And, and uh, we had a good library in town, and, and so I went to the library all the time. Um, and, uh, and so I, I always read as a kid. Um, and, uh, and so when I. When I went to college, I I did major in English, and and um and I just that's where I found Thomas Pynchon, and I, and uh, and just was a big fan of his stuff, um, especially his early stuff. Like like V has a lot of really working class theme themes and people in it. You know, he, in in V he has this group called the Whole Sick Crew, and um they're they're like Navy guys or or these marginally employed twenty year olds hanging out and they're always drinking, and it was just a world I I recognized, and it, it's, if you're a working class kid, it's hard to find a world you recognize in literature. And so so that was kind of my, my inroad to pension.
0: Well, that's interesting that you say that, because I've talked about that on this show before with people, of just how, like, you know, in, like, publishing can feel really insular, and it can also <laughs> feel, like, really white, and it can feel really um, middle class to upper middle class. Like, I would say the majority of people, especially when it comes to literary fiction, um, <laughs> you know, the majority of young people coming into that world are coming from a place of privilege, relatively uh-huh. speaking, whether it's like extreme, you know, whatever the, the level of privilege happens to be. Um, I think that's the that's the norm as opposed to the exception. Yeah. Uh, so like for, you know, somebody who's working class coming into that world, um, you know, to I feel like it's a perspective that literature needs more of, but I'm interested in knowing like if you... Uh, you know, coming from that particular vantage, experienced like more resistance than you feel like you otherwise would have, or if you have strong feelings about, you know, the world of letters as a, as a snobby place, or like, what's been your experience, <laughs> or or was it welcoming? Like, what was your experience?
1: Um. Well, a few things. Like, as a kid, reading, um, and I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna alienate myself from from um, half, half your listeners by saying this. But like when I when I was a kid, I remember reading things like Catcher in the Rye, and I and man, I almost hesitate to say it, but I fucking hated that book. <laughs> I hated that kid holding Caulfield. He was so fucking rich. He had everything handed to him, um, and all he could do was cry about it. And uh, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking you got kicked out of your fourth school. I mean I'm 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 at a school where I got sent to the dean. Because the teacher thought I was satanic, and I got licks. I got spanked. And you can go to a fucking private school and get pissed off about that. I wish I just had a teacher who could fucking read. You know, what I mean, and that and that and that was my experience when I, when I was reading *Catcher in the Rye*. Um, and I remember, um, I remember at, reading. At what age? What age? Uh, seven, sixteen,
0: seventeen. Okay, yeah.
1: Um, and then I remember being in, uh, well, I guess a junior in high school, and, and reading *The Great Gatsby*, which. I'll give it. I'll give it to Fitzgerald. He writes wonderful sentences, but I, I hated that book too because, you know, I, I I remember working all day, taking hauling construction trash to the dump, and then going home and reading The Great Gatsby and <laughs> reading about like uh, Jay and and uh, Daisy, and they're sitting around and they're in a Manhattan loft and they're just complaining because it's hot, and so they have to just drink more, and they're you know just everything was so. seemed so easy for them. And, and, uh, and I just, I didn't, I I wasn't a fan.
0: Yeah. That's not Um, what you, that's not what you want to read after, after after, like falling, you know, landing on a pocket full of nails.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so, so I think, I think American letters still has a, has a problem, um, dealing honestly with, I think it does well with, um, with, minority working classes, I think. Um, there's some really great working class literature by Latino writers like Jack Lopez. Um, I think there's a lot of really great um, African-American working class literature. I mean, Chester Himes did a great job with his early novels, um, and, and, and up to and including today. Um, I, I think I think white working classes are still kind of marginalized as white trash so you either get these these really kind of um um just depraved characters or fucked up characters the way that that, say larry brown wrote them or you get if you go back far enough just these kind of overly glamorized ones like the way john steinbeck wrote them
0: interesting okay so Um, so you go and you you fall in love with Pynchon as an undergrad, and when you return uh-huh. to, when you return to graduate school, you knew that you wanted to focus on his work i mean did you focus on his work specifically as a graduate student
1: no not really I, I, um when i got out of graduate school, I actually went back to first i was i i worked in a a, a bar and then i worked construction again um couldn't and, you and- couldn 't stay away. <laughs> well, part of it was the family business too. Um, for a couple of years in, in my 20s, my dad was talking about uh, needing some help and 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 wanting to get in a position to hopefully retire. So, I um, I stopped doing what I was doing and I went and I I ran the business for him for a couple of years. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I saw oh he doesn't he doesn't really want to retire, um, and so I I got out of the business and then I started a punk rock magazine and then I did that and then I. And then I went back to, to school much later.
0: Okay. So what's the t- talk about the punk rock magazines, Razor Cake, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Razor Cake was, was born out of a, uh, a magazine called Flipside and Flipside was the, in, in 2000, Flipside had been the, the longest running American punk rock magazine that started in 1977 and, and, um, and it, it was, it was still going and going pretty strong and, and they, they're really there it's kind of the birth of, of L.A. punk rock and and um, and and kind of a, a seminal magazine. And in 2000, um, the managing editor, a guy named Todd Taylor, um, wanted to start a new magazine because Flipside was folding. And I'd been writing for them. Todd had brought me in, in like '95, and so I'd been writing for them for five years, six years. And and Todd said, Hey, do you wanna do you wanna start a magazine? Uh, now that flip side's folding, and I wasn't really doing much. I'd been running the job sites for my dad and I'd, I'd recently quit that. And um, and the last thing I did before quitting running the job sites was I, I got a loan and I built a house and I sold the house before any money came due and I made like 10 grand. And I figured, well... 10 grand. I could probably live a year off of that in LA, <laughs> um, in 2000. So, uh, or, well, 2001. So I, I said, so yeah, I'll come out. We'll, we'll start the magazine. So I, uh,
0: so I did. And, and how did it go? I mean, did you enjoy it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that first year was great. I, I actually did live a year in LA off, off of 10 grand. Um, and, uh, and it, it was, it was tight, but you know, also I was getting all kinds of free music for the magazine and, getting into shows and that kind of thing. So, so I, I mean, I was able to go out and do stuff and, um, and, and yeah, that's that first year running razor cake was, was really exciting. We, uh, we, we kind of caught on right away. And so we got our circulation up pretty quickly and, and kind of amazingly a few hundred people were buying subscriptions off the first issue, um, which I, I'd never, buy. <laughs> I'd never buy a subscription off a magazine that had one issue out, but, um, but it it caught on and, and 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 pretty quickly and um and so yeah it was great it was a, it was a great experience
0: so do you do you have a musical background i mean were you steeped in punk music or was this something that you just sort of kind of stumbled into
1: I'm, i i mean i i listened to punk rock um when you when you work on construction sites there's a lot of classic rock and it can be um it can be invasive it can be really annoying um when you have to listen to it you know 40 hours a week um and uh and and so I was always looking in in high school for something that that sounded different than that so I wasn't really a I wasn't a punk rocker in high school um and even now I don't really look like <laughs> a punk rocker but um but I always just listen to the music and so when when Todd uh started out at at Flipside he he brought me in to do uh music reviews and and um, and then gradually, I worked up to doing interviews with bands and writing a column and all those
0: kinds of things so to to talk a little bit about classic rock, like is there a song that you hear that makes you cringe and brings you back to like working on a construction site? Is there music that you just can't <laughs> listen to because of all those hours spent um, you know hearing it over and over again?
1: Yeah you know if I, if I hear if I hear anything by Led Zeppelin, I have to like go through this this whole method of calming myself down <laughs> um i kind of feel like if i die and i hear led zeppelin i'll know that there is an afterlife and i'm in hell um but it but but yes what led zeppelin i think my, so So now i've alienated the rest of your audience i hate <laughs> in the ride <laughs> the great gatsby and led zeppelin i guess no one wants to talk to me now um but yeah the the yeah, that's up when the worst.
0: So wait, do you think, I mean, this is an interesting question. I wonder, do you think that my audience is largely, like, white, middle class or upper upper middle class? I have no idea. I have no way of knowing, you know? I'd be... I,
1: have, I have no idea. I'd, I'm, I'm just going on things that would offend a, a general reading and listening, music listening to public.
0: Yeah, like, I mean, I wonder, like, it would be very interesting to know what the... Uh, like what the musical tastes, generally speaking, are of the people who are listening to this right now, you know. Yeah. But I guess like Catcher, Catcher in the Rye for like the educated, uh, you know, white, went to college person tends uh-huh. to be, tends to be a big book. I mean, right, Salinger.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No doubt. Um, okay. So Razor Cake, and then I have uh, I, I'm looking at these notes here, and I have that you once performed a reading. That ended in a full-on barroom brawl. So I definitely uh-huh. want, I want to make sure we spend some time on that. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, well, when when I started Razorcake Cake, we also had started um, a publishing company, Gorski Press, and we've Gorski's put out twenty books now. And and um, and when we first started it, we we really did it on that kind of DIY punk model where we would um, set up these these kind of big crazy tours that we would send authors on and and um, you know, you go from town to town, you sleep on your friend's floor, you, you perform anywhere that will let you perform, you know, be it like an American Legion Hall or an art gallery or bookstore or whatever, and, um, and you just kind of set up this network. Um, and we, we really kind of built it out of the zine community and, and that type of thing. So, um, so one of our first tours, I, w- I went on with this guy, Rich Mackin, and we put out a book of his called Dear Mr. Mackin. And Rich wrote these funny letters to, to corporations, you know, things like he'd, he'd write Lever 2000 and say, you know, what are the 2000 body parts? I can only come up with 182. And then he listed all 182 that he came up with. Um, you know, it's just crazy, crazy things like that. He wrote haikus for Starbucks, just funny shit. So Rich and I went, went on a tour and the way we, we set up the tour was we just kind of said, where do you know people? And, um, And he knew some people, you know, in some cities I knew people in other cities and we just kind of set up this, this three week book tour. And, um, and I, I knew a guy in Longview, Texas. His his name was Roy. And he was, he was a big, um, like supporter of, of razor cake. And so he, he said, I have a bar, man, come perform at my bar. So it was the Texas blues bar in East Texas, about like an hour outside of Shreveport, maybe some, somewhere in that basic area. Um, and uh and so it was it was weird, like a, one of those situations where you walk into the bar and everyone stops and looks at you. But it was weird because they stopped everyone stopped and looked at me, and they knew who I was, and they, they'd been readers of Razorcake Cake, and they were excited to meet me, and they wanted to ask me questions about like people I'd interviewed and things like that, like, "Hey, man, tell me about Ian McKay. You <laughs> know, and shit like that, and um, and then we ended up doing the reading, and 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 it was us reading, and then a punk, one of us would read, and then a punk band would play, and then another of us would read, and the punk band would play, and and a lot of times that's a uh, situation set up for disaster, but like when I was doing the reading, these guys were doing almost like call and response stuff, like oh shit, oh no, you know, and 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 just going along with the reading, it was this really raucous, fun affair. Um, and then I guess it, it got a little too raucous with the last band and, and, a, and, a big brawl broke out. Um, and, um, and then like the, the brawl quickly got pushed outside and, and I, I stayed inside, but, um,
0: Yeah, I was going to say, where, I, where were you when this thing breaks out? Are you on stage or are you like in the middle of it?
1: One thing life's taught me, Brad, is if there's a fight, I'm going to be somewhere else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so I, I, every, everyone, it started. It started inside, and then someone broke it up, and then the two guys were thrown outside, and then they they kept fighting, and then more people decided that was a good idea and went out and fought with them. Um, and then I stayed inside. That's a good yeah, story. Yeah, <laughs> and one one of the guys broke his leg in the fight, and how you break your leg in a fight, I do not know, Oof. but. I don't want to be close enough to see it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um okay, so I you know just to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about okay. actual the actual writing process for you and like okay. you know a, a question that comes up in my mind and it's something that I've asked people on this program before. Yeah, maybe not specifically the same way that I'm going to ask it to you, but uh when someone has like a trade or has worked a previous job in an intensive way like you have with construction, I'm curious to know if like the work you did there um, you know, has impacted the way that you build books? Like, do you find yourself, uh, do you look back on it and say, oh, what I learned in those years, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, really informs how I work now as a writer?
1: Um, to to some extent. Like, when I was a kid, what what, what my dad would do is he would say, um, all right, this job needs to be done. So, so go out on the job site and do it. And he'd say, here's what needs to be done. Think about what tools you're going to need. Think about what it's going to take. Put it in the truck, and I'll drop you off in the morning. And um, and so, like, I'd have to visualize myself through the whole job. I'll do this, this, and this. I'll need these tools, and and um and so, in a in a sense, that that doesn't really apply to writing. I don't really I don't really do that with the writing. But like, when I wanted to start the magazine, um, got together with Todd, and like, all right, let's visualize what tools we're going to need. Let's think what it's going to take to put one of these magazines together. What's every step in the process? Um, and when we started a publishing company, you know, we, we did the same thing. Um, and so it, it, helped, it helped on those ends. It helps like an, on, the, on marketing ends and things like that. But as far as writing, I don't, I don't know. I mean, writing to me is just kind of having fun. <laughs> I don't like to think of it as... I mean, I, I think of it as, as a trade in the sense that I want to put as much time into it as I would in, into a part-time job. Um, I mean, I want to put, you know, 15, 20 hours a week into it one way or another. Um, but, uh,
0: well, so how do you but, work? Are you like, are you, an, you, you say 15 to 20 hours a week? Are you putting in like, you know, what, three hours a day every day? Or is it in bigger bursts than that? On
1: you know, it, it's probably more, more like average, like now, now it's summertime and I don't work during the summer. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I put in easily 15 to 20 hours this week, um, just because I was writing a story, I was having fun with it. Um, I guess last week, because today's Monday. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, over the summer, I'm, I put in a lot of hours because I can. I'm in that, in that great position. Over the school year, maybe a little less. Um,
0: and you're not tortured by it. Like, the work itself doesn't, like, you don't get, like, bogged down in it. You didn't... In the in the years that you were kind of learning how to write, you didn't go through rejections that leveled you. Like, had, had the work as a, a you know all those years doing construction give you perspective that maybe other writers don't have, where you know you, you know what a shitty day at work means <laughs> compared to <laughs> Look, like I,
1: I mean, I, I have the advantage of, of never feeling like I was entitled to anything. You know, I mean, I always felt like I mean, Jesus, even when I was like you know, 12 and wanted wheels for my skateboard. I had to go mow people's lawns for it. You know, so I mean, I always feel like when, whenever uh, you get a rejection, you're like, oh, I asked you, and I know you have to do a lot of hard work, so if you don't want it, I'll just ask someone else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, try. I guess it, it helps, but rejections suck for everyone. I don't know anyone who doesn't feel, feel shitty every time they get a rejection. And I don't, I don't know any writer who feels like they are where they want to be. You know what I mean? I, I think it would almost be sad to be where you want to be, um, in the sense that then then um, then you don't have shit to look forward to.
0: So where do you want to be?
1: Um, you know, Stockholm, accepting the Nobel Prize, I guess. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah, my speech written and everything, you know. <laughs> um, shit. I, don't, I don't know, but I, I'm to to some extent I I look at. Um, I look at at what's going on with literature now and how it's changing, and I'm I'm kind of excited about how how much cachet some of these big indie presses are are getting, you know, like Gray Wolf and 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 Coffee House and and um, you know, I mean that's, I think that will be a, a good good kind of next step. I'd I'd like like to be there. I mean, I'm happy with Manic D. I like I like the books that they put out, and and they've been really good. Um, so I don't I don't want to disparage Manic D. But I mean, I guess you always want to go go up one level
0: every sure. time. Yeah, I mean, um, like there are some. I mean, it's it's interesting to see, um, like the like Grey Wolf and Coffee House, like they've had some pretty big successes, you know, with their books, mm-hmm. and they the quality is always there. And um, you know, what I keep waiting for is I keep waiting for some of the bigger heavy hitter authors to just go indie, you know, like where they just completely run their own shop and publish themselves. But it hasn't really happened yet. I don't know no, if it not will. Not
1: really. Well, John Edgar Weidman tried that, um, but I, I don't know how well it worked for him. And uh, and and having published stuff through Gorski Press, I mean it's it's uh it's a lot of work to to pu I'm, I put out a couple of my own books on Gorski, and and that was, <laughs> that was the worst experience of the publishing. I did I didn't want to put out my stuff. Um, you know, I wanted to put out other people's stuff, and that, that to me that was a lot more fulfilling on the publishing side, and so. It's it's tough to publish your own stuff.
0: And it's nice to have somebody who like externally who wants to print your stuff like as opposed to being like I'm I made this and I'm going to do it. I don't know. There's something about someone saying yes and putting the resources behind it. However, mm-hmm. however however meager those resources might ultimately be. <laughs> right, right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh are you working on anything new like uh currently?
1: I um I I am I I'm, I'm working on a, a series of short stories about my my favorite authors and their metaphysical ukuleles. Um,
0: their metaphysical what?
1: <laughs> ukuleles. Um, I I I I play the ukulele. My wife is from Hawaii, and my brothers-in-law taught me how to how to play the uke. And and um and when I was doing the, the PhD, something about you know becoming a doctor of books scene so, so silly to me. And I I remember finishing up, um, a whole bunch of scholarship on Melville and I just, it seems, it seems so, so serious and goofy that I I wanted to make fun of myself. So I wrote a story about Herman Melville and his ukulele. And, um, and then I thought that was funny. And so then, and then, you know, I did a dissertation on Thomas Pynchon and, uh, and I've published a lot on Pynchon. And so I, I wrote a Pynchon ukulele story and then, I've kind of kept going with with a bunch of my favorites, Flannery O'Connor and Jack Kerouac, and a bunch more.
0: I feel like that's I feel like that's it's safe to say that like that hasn't been done before.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean I, I i didn't I didn't plan to do it as a project, and and kind of every time I think about all right, I'm going to do this as a collection, it just loses all its lustre to me. And then and then every time I say, all right, I'm not going to do it as a collection. I'll sit down and write another. Uh, piece with, with, with an author and a ukulele. And what I do is I've been, I've been doing a lot of research on the authors and I try to write in the style of the author and, and kind of figure out how they, how they do stuff. Um, like what, what, what makes them unique and, and then try to steal some of their, their chops and, and then make it mine too. and, been fine.
0: okay so but like just just so i can wrap my head around this a little bit better like okay. you've got flannery o'connor in a story mm-hmm. it's like she's an actual character in a story writing in the first person
1: uh well she's that one's in the in the third person i wrote it about um she she had a, a very kind of um i guess puritanical affair with a textbook salesman and so i wrote more or less a, a biographical story about that um where I gave her a ukulele and I based it on the true story, but she's also playing the uke in it. And then I, I, I borrowed a bunch of sentences from a bunch of her different short stories and kind of wove them in. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's a real mixture of fact and fiction.
0: Seems interesting. That's interesting. Uh, um, I mean, I'm just, you know, I, i I'm, for some reason I was just seeing it as a movie in my head too, like some sort of, <laughs> Some sort of, like, pastiche or some sort of, like, uh, I don't know how you would weave it all together, but I like the idea of all these authors playing the ukulele. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I have, I have a bunch.
0: And I, you know what else I want you to do is I want you to write uh, about construction, you know? I feel like, I mean, have you done that? Am I, am I missing something?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, my the, the, that was my first three books.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, then I am yeah, missing something. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, drinks for a little Guy is, is almost straight autobiography about me being a framer in the early '90s, and then um, and then I wrote Barney's Crew, and I wrote a bunch of my construction stories in that.
0: Okay, good. Um,
1: and uh, and you, you know the the thing is the the I, I have five books out. Madhouse Fog just came out, and the one that came out before that was called Train Curl. And it it was kind of a real honest portrayal of, of working class life in in uh, in coastal Florida, and um, and it got it got some pretty good reviews. But I noticed every reviewer um, mentioned the white trash lifestyle, and uh, and you know when I was growing up, I got called that a lot. And that's that's kind of a hurtful thing to call someone. Sure. Um, and uh, I mean it had it had real kind of emo- emotional impact on me. To, be called, you know, disposable and to feel disposable for so much of my life, and then I felt like, all right, man, now I'm a, now I'm a PhD. I got a book, my fourth book out. It's it's on a really cool press, and and I'm I'm really stoked about it. And all these fuckers are still calling me white trash. <laughs> so right. with, uh, with Madhouse Fog, I was, said, all right, I'm I'm gonna actually uh, drop the class issues out of my
0: out of my stories. So um, does that fuel you? I mean, like all that stuff, like from your past and you know, all that class bullshit, like, does that, uh, is, I mean, it gives you a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it, you know? Right. Um,
0: I mean, I feel that and I, I didn't come up like in uh, a working class. I mean, we were, we were middle class. My dad was sort of ascendant, but like my grandparents definitely working class on my dad's side. So I feel like I have like, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like stretched in between worlds or something like that, but, uh-huh. um, I don't know. There's a part of me that sort of feels that way too.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, it's something that I, I did struggle with a lot. And, and part of the reason I, I, I didn't talk so much about it in, in the latest book is that, um, I have been at, at Cal state channel islands for nine years now. And, and I mean, I, I, spend my days talking about books and right. and I I mean I am a pension scholar and I I, mo- I mostly don't I haven't really been in that world of construction for a long time. Right. Um so I'm I'm uh, it's I, it's not really part of my experience it's not really it's something that um, maybe I'm, I'm burying or whatever, but it's something that's not really that active in my life right now.
0: Do you feel like you've gotten softer, like because you've been working in like the co- <laughs> the cozy confines of academia? You're like not as tough. You're not as tough as you used to be. <laughs> you,
1: you, you know what? I, I teach a whole class on masculinity, um, like how we how we construct masculinity, um, because I, I I was thinking of, I thought about it a, a lot w- once I got the PhD. A lot of people from my hometown just. Just kind of looked at me suspiciously, like, well, "What the fuck are you doing? You know, who who are you? I don't I don't even know you anymore." And and um, and and there was a lot of like, well, "What a what a pussy thing to do," you unbelievable.
0: know? Unbelievable, isn't that unbelievable? And, how like that's like it a, it's like you go to get your education when you come from a working class environment, and rather than like cheer you on, people call you a pussy and like f- yeah. they, they don't trust you anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, being in, being in academics and, and working with a lot of women um, and uh, after having grown up in construction working with a lot of men, what I came to realize is that women are, have figured this out a lot better than men. I mean, just as a general statement, um, you know, the work that women are doing in, in, in our culture and I'm making a generalization is generally more valuable than the work men are doing in our culture um... you know you look at what what most professional women choose to do They they choose to go into helping careers and you know they become psychologists they become teachers they become doctors or nurses or, you, you know i mean they help people whereas if you look at what generally speaking men go to do they they go to to destroy society they go to become stockbrokers or bankers or um... you know <laughs> things like that or, or or even like working construction, I realized, all right, I'm just tearing up this beautiful town that I once loved and putting shitty tract homes up. Yeah. Um, so that's a so, good I point. Mean, I, I think maybe we need to rethink w- what men should be doing in our society. I mean, I think if we rethink what it means to be a man, we might might rethink, um, you know, how, how we can have a better society.
0: Well, no, it's just I was just down in Louisiana for a, a wedding. Uh, family wedding and, you know, had a great time and I go down there and I'm like, you know, I live in California, which right away sends up a red flag, you know, to a mm-hmm. certain degree, but, like my family's great. And my extended family, like they totally put up with me. But every time I'm down there, the issue of the fact that I don't eat meat comes up uh, uh-huh. and talk about something that makes people think you're a pussy. Like when you're in the South, like, <laughs> it's just, but you know, what fascinates me is the fact that like food choice has such a impact on, uh, how manly someone is. Like I eat, uh-huh. I eat cattle, you know, like that, that makes no sense to me. Like in much the same way that like, you know, Ooh, you got your PhD, like, you know, like, right. somehow that's like womanly or something. It's just make, it's completely makes no sense to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy.
0: So with this class that you teach on masculinity, like, I mean, obviously it's got to have some tie to literature, but like, what's the... Uh-huh. I mean, aside—it's just about how we construct it, or how the the concept of masculinity is constructed in contemporary literature. Or?
1: Well, it's a it's a research writing class, so it's um, we, we take like an interdisciplinary approach. So we look at um, what is biological. What are what are the biological differences between men and women? We look at what are the psychological different. How does psychology approach it? How does sociology approach it? How do people tell stories about it in literature? And then and then students do a research paper on however masculinity is impacting them. So that's basically the class. And so so what I, when I, the literature I teach are, are these very kind of masculine poets. I teach a, a book by Bucky Sinister and a book by James J.
0: Okay, interest. I should take this class. I feel like
1: you can. It's a state college, man. Just come on <laughs> up. It's only like 40 miles away from you.
0: Right. Right. Uh, well, all right, Sean. Well, listen, it's been great talking with you, man, and congratulations on uh, Madhouse Fog, and uh, best of luck on the uh, the ukulele short story series. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, that's going to be an interesting read.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks. And it was, it was great talking to you. I enjoy your
0: show. All right, you guys, there you go. That is it. That is Sean Carswell. Go get his novel. It's called Madhouse Fog, and it is available now from Manic the Press. You can find Sean online at seancarswell.org. And you can also find him on the Facebook. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, if anyone listening has thoughts on all of this Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble business, uh, I'd be interested to hear from you. I want to know what you think about the future of books, uh, the future of publishing, what it's going to look like, because I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I can guess. It seems to be heading, it seems to be veering off into a digital wild west. I mean, that's where we are. Do you sense my confusion? So if if you are less confused and have some clarity on this or would like to share your own brand of confusion, uh, that would be cool. And I would, uh, you know, if I get some good letters, I will either post them on the show's website at otherpeoplepod.com or perhaps I'll read them right here on the program itself. So if you would like to write to me, Uh, Along these lines, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Please remember that Mozart's face was pitted from smallpox and that Auden called Rilke the greatest lesbian poet since Sappho. Uh, That's it for now. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thanks uh, to Sean Carswell for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it, everyone. You have my gratitude. And I will be back in just a few days with uh, some more programming Another author, another conversation, some more digressions, some more uh, touching introspection, et cetera. And uh, Amazon, interestingly enough, does not own this podcast. Were you aware of that? Jeff Bezos, you do not own me. And if you're listening, uh, I would like to have you on the program. And moreover, I would like to interview you in a private jet or uh, perhaps in a lavish vacation setting. Hi, Jeff.